millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hi listeners, Benjamin here, coming to you from the South London basement once again. Welcome to this week's edition of Coronapod. And joining me once more are Noah Baker and Amy Maxman. Hello to you both. Hi, good morning. Hi, Ben. Today, we're going to be talking about things that have been receiving a lot of coverage recently and are causing, you know, a fair bit of concern in some quarters, and they are virus variants. I think we should maybe start the show by defining what we mean by a variant, because it's a fairly ambiguous word in, in some circles. Who, who would like to take that one? I can probably jump in on that one. So there's been a lot of discussion over how we should refer to these variants. Words like strain have been thrown around, variant has been thrown around, and it means a, a whole bunch of different things. Essentially, when we talk about a, a variant of a virus, we're talking about some mutations in the genome of that virus. And those mutations could have no effect at all. Those mutations could, however, have a functional change. And the ones that we're going to be talking about here are variants that have been shown to somehow change the way that the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in this case, interacts with people or spreads or even its lethality, how dangerous it could be. And those variants around the world are causing quite significant concern. There are questions like how might variants in the virus change the way that vaccines work? How might they change natural immunity, whether or not people might be immune to a new variant of a virus? And I guess these are some of the things we can start to dig into while talking about variants in this coronapod. And there are two of these variants in particular that are being studied pretty heavily then, and they have, uh, well, quite particular names. So I think maybe the first one we all heard about was the one that was detected in the UK, B1117. And I think maybe the first news about that one was it's more transmissible, according to several lines of evidence. And then there was a second one that was detected in South Africa. And it's really swept through South Africa. The last thing I read is that it's now 90% of the cases in South Africa are this variant. It's also called 501Y.V2 or B1351. And now it's spread to 31 countries. I mean, of course, those are there's the places we know about. The one that was detected in the UK is in 73 countries. And maybe we want to make a note about naming. Yesterday, the WHO 
had a press briefing where they sort of noted we need to think of new ways to name these variants because we don't want to name them after the country where they were detected. That's kind of misleading because people think, oh, you know, let's just block off South Africa or something like that. So it's misleading, leads to the wrong behavior. It can be stigmatizing. There's like a few reasons why we don't want to name it after the country. But then again, saying something like 501Y.V2, I know even for me, you give me a few of those and I'm going to start to get confused. Absolutely. I think even beyond that, if you think about the countries when they're first detected, that doesn't mean that's the country where the mutation first happened either, right? So for example, the UK has a really active genomic surveillance system running that is, you know, really world leading. In fact, currently, almost half of the SARS-CoV-2 genomes have been uploaded to GISAID, which is like a um, a not-for-profit collection of genomes that are collected and collated. Almost half of those have come from the UK. And so when you have some countries that are really oversampling and others that are undersampling, then you're going to pick up variants in one place more than you might in another place. And so I think it's really key to make sure that we think about naming these things in the correct way, because, you know, scientifically and, you know, morally, and even just in terms of memory, there's a lot of things to think about there. Yeah, for sure. And so the latest news, I think, that was interesting is that the variant that was first picked up in South Africa, this 501YV2, so this is the one that has a mutation in its spike protein. That's the protein, you know, that it uses to enter cells. It has this mutation called E484K. So there's this particular mutation in the spike protein. And so that one, they've noticed that antibodies that are, say, generated against the original coronavirus might miss this new variant because of the changes on the spike protein. So that means two things. One, it's been found that people who already had COVID could be reinfected with this variant. The other thing it means is that the vaccines that have been made, where they were designed with the original spike protein in mind, those vaccines might be less effective against this variant. But here's the kind of latest news on top of that. So that's what was worrying about the one that was detected in South Africa, this mutation in E. 484K. But now in the UK, the variant that we saw there, B1117, I think at least 16 variations on that variant have been seen, and some of them have this mutation, E484K. Yeah, two big questions there, and uh, this is what researchers are really trying to get to the bottom of. Now, from what I understand in terms of whether this mutation will affect vaccine efficacy, um, results have shown that that may well be the case, but it doesn't appear to have gone from an it works to an it doesn't work situation. There's not this kind of binary on or off, but there may be a reduction in how well vaccine works. And I think in one of our stories, we've got some numbers showing how that might play out for a new vaccine that's had a phase three trial. Yes, that's very true. So far, everything seems to still have, you know, some efficacy. The vaccine from Johnson & Johnson, it's a single shot adenovirus vector vaccine. So that means basically they stuff something that was made in the lab that looks like the spike protein into a cold virus vector that's, you know, been inactivated that shuttles the spike protein into a cell. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in a trial, it was 66% effective overall against moderate to severe covid But when you divide that up by the countries where it was tested, it was actually 72% effective in the U.S. and yet 57% effective in South Africa, where we assume that's been brought down because of the variant that's there. I think it's so difficult when we think about how 
variants might interact with, immune response might interact with, vaccine responses, because there are so many moving parts here. And really, a lot of this can come down to apples and oranges. So there are limitless like combinations of variants you can have. You could also have two of these variants could end up on one virus particle, which could change the dynamics again. And then the way they impact the immune response is also variable. So the immune response isn't just a case of the virus arrives and there's an immune response. The immune response is made up of a whole bunch of different responses. There's T-cell activation, there's various types of antibody responses, some are neutralizing, some are not. And all these variants could cause changes in all of these different types of immune response in different scenarios. And so it's very, very hard to really nail how variants are going to impact immunity or impact the efficacy of vaccines in any kind of firm way. But it is certainly enough to cause concern around the world. And that's leading people to ask questions like, do we need new vaccines already? Um, and that's kind of a whole other topic of conversation to, to discuss. Yeah, the vaccine manufacturers are really thinking about, you know, we were seeing these great numbers, you know, upwards of 90% for a lot of the vaccines. But if they're brought down already by the variants that we know exist now, you know, what could happen as new combinations of mutations arise? So this is something manufacturers are thinking about I think Moderna, which has one of the mRNA vaccines, they're already talking about can they reformulate theirs so that, you know, not only does it sort of mimic properties of the spike protein in the original coronavirus, but also mimic properties of the spike protein in 501YV2. That's the one that was originally found in South Africa. Yeah, the team behind the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine have come out today, I believe, and said they're looking to reformulate theirs and have a new version of the vaccine ready by autumn from what's been reported. So, so yeah, it seems like companies are jumping into action. I think as well, it's probably worth mentioning that although vaccine manufacturers are looking at ways to update their vaccine or create new vaccines or new formulations of the vaccine, there is a source in one of Nature's stories this week written by our colleague Ewan Calloway that says those things are important, but really the biggest tool we have here and the most powerful tool we have here is deploying the vaccines we already have as quickly as possible. If we can quash as much as we can before new variants take hold too much, then that severely restricts the ability of new variants to take hold any further, if that makes sense. Amy, I do have another question for you, though, right? Because from your experience, you know, this pandemic happened and it started and there was immediately things that you can do. There was a kind of a century old playbook of public health response, which was contact trace, test, isolate, so on and so on. And then vaccines were being developed and it was done incredibly quickly this time using these amazing new technologies. But there was kind of a playbook about how to do that as well. And it was sped up and it was great. But we didn't hear the word variant in the news until like a couple months ago. (laughs) And yet surely it's also part of that same playbook that variants are coming, right? Viruses are going to mutate. That's what they do. We've known that for a very long time. Is this something that you're surprised is only coming up now? Or have you seen people kind of not thinking about this step before in, you know, in pandemics or in public health responses that you've covered? I think anybody who studies evolutionary biology would have known that this is coming. I mean, early on, there were researchers, you know, we talked about the group Next Strain a while back. They compare sort of people who post their genome sequences to this online resource that you mentioned earlier. So they compare genomes and they sort of make family trees of the virus's genomes to see how it's changing over time. So already they have been watching this enough to know, okay, this virus isn't mutating especially rapidly. 
It's not slow. It's not fast. It's sort of moderate what you would expect. I think that's one thing to make clear. So I think they've, they've definitely had their radar up as for like, you know, was it really in, you know, say December or something when the first variant that had an effect on functionality was detected? I think, you know, if you remember, there were variants detected earlier last year, but the studies showing whether or not they were more lethal or more transmissible were kind of inconclusive. I think we had a peak of like headlines, like deadly new variant, but those are really hard studies to prove because, you know, you don't want to just show something in a Petri dish. You kind of also want to see, do we also have signs saying, you know, is this sweeping through the population, things like that. So maybe it just took a while to have the accumulation of evidence there to say, nope, for sure, this is definitely more transmissible than what we saw before. But to your point, I think back then, there were definitely people who were saying, we really should be moving on this because the more virus you have, the more chances that some of those viruses are going to spontaneously have mutations that are helpful to their survival and worse for our survival. So by all means, let's try and contain this before that happens because speed is important. You know, I completely agree with what Ewan said in his story. The best thing to do right now would be to get those vaccines out there. And I also want to say to get them out there to communities that are really hit hard by the virus, because, you know, we can really get them out there to people who live pretty isolated lives like myself, but that's not really going to change how fast this thing is spreading. We really need to get it to the places where there's a ton of virus. That makes sense because those are going to be the places where the virus has the most chance of mutating. Absolutely. And I think it's easy to, for me to sit here um, going, oh, God, I've only just started seeing the word variant in the news. And surely we've always known that's going to happen. But I guess we should also remember that, you know, eight months ago, there wasn't a single working vaccine. And so to be expecting them to be coming up with variant vaccines as well, you know, in the space of a year, maybe is asking quite a lot of scientists. It's not that they weren't thinking about it. It's just that there's only so much that a news cycle can handle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember early on talking with a researcher in Nigeria who's doing some sequencing of the virus in his lab. They were one of the only labs, you know, on the continent of Africa doing whole genome sequencing of the virus. And he was saying this is so important because we need to know what are the variants of the virus that are circulating here, because that's going to matter when it comes to figuring out what vaccines to use. I think these recent developments with variants are really bringing into focus the value of genomic surveillance. I think there was a source in one of our stories that was quoted as saying it's really kind of come of age as a discipline during this pandemic. And that is just sampling the virus that's found in different populations and sequencing the genome and getting it uploaded to a place where it can be shared and compared, because that's really the way we've been tracking these things. And as time goes on, I feel like tracking how this virus is mutating around the world is going to become more and more vital to finally winning the battle as it were. Yeah, for sure. It's really important. You know, it's kind of, there's so many things about this outbreak where you're like living in deja vu from 2020. And it's disappointing that the US doesn't have a system for this yet, because so many labs can do whole genome sequencing for viruses. It's not that we don't have the capability, but it really needs a system. We need to have it so that some certain percent, let's say, I think I've seen the number thrown around that at least 5% of coronavirus cases that virus should be sequenced. So it really involves, you know, making a sort of system where, say, health departments work with, you know, labs, whether that's private sector or academia, to make sure that we're 
sequencing these variants and uploading them to a site where people analyze them. And I guess it's worth saying the U.S. has also identified these variants we talked about. They've all been now found in the U.S. They don't seem to be particularly common, but then again, it's not like we're sequencing a lot and who knows what else is here. And I guess important to mention that those have been found in the US, that some of them have also been found in the UK. That doesn't necessarily mean people have travelled from South Africa or wherever it is. You know, those variants can also arise because viruses mutate and the mutations that stick in a population could be the same mutation in different places. Yeah, there could be independent evolution. That's something else that, you know, phylogeneticists also look at. And they do that by saying, okay, what's the background? If they have the whole genome, they can say, are they exactly, you know, this one that we found in the UK and this one that we found in Kansas, are they exactly the same or are there reasons to believe that they arose independently because the backgrounds are a little bit different? It's the sort of hard science angle, which I think people could easily overlook as being important when they're focusing on diagnostic testing and treatment and so on and developing vaccines. This sort of surveillance, this genomic sequencing for surveillance and gathering data, maybe is easy for people to sort of sweep under the rug as somehow less important, but it's not. It's really, really vital. I also wonder whether or not, as well as having systems in place in countries, it would also be really useful to have a kind of a globally organised system through some kind of organisation like the WHO, which could help properly surveil the different variants in different countries around the world. Yeah, for sure. And that's something they did speak about at their last press briefing as well. They were saying we need to have kind of a collected database for this sort of thing. And they want to also think of what are smarter ways to be naming it. So that's something that's certainly on their mind. There's also been a lot of talk given these variants. Dr. Tedros of the WHO had a editorial yesterday out where he notes that, you know, most of the world's vaccine supply has gone to wealthy countries that house 16% of the world's population. And meanwhile, all of these middle-income and low-income countries are really without vaccines. And so he talked about a moral obligation. And I can see that angle being really strong, you know, especially thinking about healthcare workers in those places. You know, some countries have less than 20 times fewer nurses than we do in the UK or in the US. So the idea of having a virus that's going to threaten the lives of a lot of health workers in places where there's very few health workers is devastating. But I guess the news with the variants also makes it a sort of practical obligation. If you want to go ahead and let this virus just thrive in other countries, that's also just very practically, that's also going to give it time to mutate and have more variants there. So there's sort of a dual reason why you know, there really should be a huge push to get the vaccine to other countries. And whether that's with donations or changes in patents or setting up, making sure that manufacturers can allow generic manufacturers to make the vaccine, all of that's real important to push on. Well, the issue of vaccine manufacture and rollout is a huge one, Amy, as you've just touched on there, and definitely something that we'll have to talk about in future. But let's leave it there for this week's CoronaPod. Noah and Amy, thank you as always for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Ben. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.